So grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We're continuing our walk through 1 Peter, which is a book near the end of the New Testament written by a guy named... Oh, man, you guys are awesome. Written by a guy named Peter. And so uh, he wrote this. He writes it to churches in the region of Asia Minor, we call modern-day Turkey. And um, he's got some cool things in there for us today. Because he talks about the Old Testament prophets. And in your Old Testament, there are 39 books. And they're in different categories, these books. Some of them are historical books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, First and Second Kings, First and Kings, Second Chronicles, right? They're history books. And other books are like what we call wisdom or, or uh, poetry. Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes. They fall in that category. And then there's another category of books, and they're called the Prophets. And so when you think about prophets, I think what most people think about right away are people who foretell a future, right? They're, they're prophetic, and they, they talk about what's going to happen. And the prophets in the Old Testament certainly did that, but that's not what they mostly did. What they mostly did was this. They reminded people of their calling. See, the prophets spoke to the people in the Israel and the people of Judah, and they said, remember who you are, remember whose you are, and live according to that calling. And they would remind people of God's word and God's law. And a lot of times they would remind people, say, you're not living according to God's law, and God, there's going to be judgment. Now, this is going to shock you. Most of the time, these prophets, not popular not well liked. In fact, quite a few of them lost their life because they were prophets. Because they said things that the leaders didn't like and they got rid of them. What was a tough gig. But these prophets, every now and then, they would talk about the one. They would talk about the one that God would send to save his people, and in some cases, to save the whole world. And they call this person the Messiah. And there are over 350 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. There are over 350 times these prophets talked about the Anointed One, the One who would come. And so what I want to do today is take a look at all 350 prophecies that are in the Old Testament. And it's cool because they made extra coffee for you. Okay, no. um, take a look at three of them. So the first one is, is the earliest one. It's from Genesis chapter 3. God says this. He says, uh, he says this to uh, the serpent, the one who had tempted Adam and Eve to fall and to sin and to break relationship with God. And God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So one's going to come. And this one, this promised one, this Messiah, he's going to crush the head of the evil one. He's going to put an end to him. And in the process, the evil one will get a small strike back. He'll strike his heel. Pretty cool, right? A little vague. Kind of vague, right? Like, "Ah, that's pretty broad, right? Here's a better one. Not a better one, a different one, a more specific one. This is Micah chapter 5. Micah's a prophet. Uh, he speaks around uh, 500 AD BC. He says this. 
But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That one's really specific. So this promised one, this Messiah, is going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a small little town, still is a small little town, about seven miles south of Jerusalem. That's where the promised one's going to be born in. But then it gets weird. Be born in Bethlehem, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That's just weird. It's another prophecy. It's from Isaiah 53. I don't have it written down there because it's a little long, but it's so good. I want to share it with you. This is about 700 years before Jesus. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So Jesus, not a handsome dude. All those pictures you have in your home, Jesus, good-looking guy, not a handsome dude. I told the confirmation kids this. One of them was like, kind of like you, Pastor Jason. <laughs> Seriously, middle schoolers. Man. But it continues. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man familiar with suffering. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And then this is cool. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesied, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to come, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to do it for you. But then, it gets even weirder. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was assigned a grave for the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So that's interesting, right? He was assigned a grave for the wicked, and yet buried with the rich. That's odd. Doesn't happen. Very specific. And this comes true with Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who offered Jesus his family tomb. They all come together in Jesus. Continues. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Okay, so here's the one. He's going to suffer for the sins of the world. Not just suffer, he's going to be an offering, a sin offering. And you know what he did with sin offerings? You killed them, right? You killed the offerings. And after he's done this, he will see the light of life. That is very unusual. 
That doesn't happen. And so all scripture points to Jesus. That the one who will be from Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem, whose origins are from a old. Only God in the flesh can do that. He's going to die on a cross. He's going to suffer for the sin of the people of the world. And then he's going to see the light of life. Only a resurrection does that. And so these 350 prophecies, over 350 prophecies, they all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Think of the mathematical odds of that. I would tell you the odds, but my twin brother is the math major. I was the psych major. So I can't tell you what that means. All I know is those are astronomical odds for one person to fulfill over 350 prophecies. It's incredible. But here's the crazy thing. And this is crazy to Peter in our text today that Karen read for us. These prophets, they spoke all these things and never saw it fulfilled. Not a single one of them. Talk about a frustrating job. You work and work and work, and in some cases, even killed for what you're doing, and you never see it fulfilled. You had to see it and believe it from afar. As Peter wrote, even angels long to look into these things. That's hard, huh? Can you imagine? It's a thankless job. It's tough stuff. And as I started thinking about it, I thought, you know what? It happens to a lot of you. You're working hard on something. You're working with someone. And you're just not seeing the results. And it feels like it's hopeless. And you wonder what you're doing. And you think it's a waste of time. And you're thinking about quitting. Here's some examples. You're working hard with a kid who's struggling. And you're just not seeing improvement. You're in a marriage that's a little rocky, and you're working at it, and it's like one step up and then two steps back. And you're starting to wonder if it's worth it. In the church, this is something we face all the time. Because this congregation exists for those who do not know Jesus Christ yet. That's why we're here. When we stop being about that, we're just going to shut the doors and walk away. Because that's why we're here. That's our mission. And it's tough. There are hundreds, hundreds of people here Easter Sunday. And the Sunday after, 82. It gets hard. So what do you do when you feel like a modern prophet? And not a modern prophet in the sense of telling the future, but a modern prophet of, of serving and working and not seeing results. What do you do? How do you continue? I got some ideas. The first is this. It's not about you. It's not about you. How many of you have gone to like a baseball game or a soccer game or a lacrosse game and you found crazy sport parent? Right? There's this one parent that's going, watch the ball! Keep your eye on the ball! What are you doing? Make that pass! Make that pass to my kid, right? They're yelling like crazy. You're like, what is going on here, right? Uh, Father Brooks Keith over at the Anglican Church, he's got this great story. 
His daughter was in the academic decathlon for Bell Christian High School. They made nationals, right? So in this, there's hotel room in Anaheim, California, and the kids are all in the room taking tests, right? And the parents are in the back, and they've been given instructions. The parents are not to say a word. And then during the test, they'll give out results, and they'll say, such and such school, this score, such and such school, this score. And if they say one school, this mom in the back yells, what are you thinking? We studied that one, right? And all pandemonium breaks out. Parents are yelling and yelling, come on! You're gonna be kidding me. That's a bad score, you know. And this is this is the nerd group, <laughs> and they're losing their minds. Why is that? Because these these parents think it's about them. They see the kid and the success or failure of the kid. They think it's about them and not the child, and so they lose their minds. And we do this all the time, in all sorts of situations. When uh, we first moved here about 11 years ago, one of our neighbors came up to us and said, don't you think it's horrible what those children over there are doing? I'm like, what what are they doing? And there are these preschool boys. And she says, they pee in the front yard. (laughs) And I'm like, really? She goes, no, it's horrible. It reflects bad on the community. I'm like, okay, if you say so, right? She thought it was about her. Even though somebody else's kids was like watering a tree somewhere. They're still there. It's been 11 years now. They've stopped doing that. Which is good because when you're, you know, you're 15 years old and watering a tree, it's not a good thing, right? But four years old, it's cute, right? We do this all the time. We do it in homes. We do it at work. We do it with our kids. We do it with our spouses. And then what happens? We get upset. Because it's about you, then you get angry. You get annoyed. You get mad. And you do it too. Your spouse does not take out the trash for the 516th time. Are you concerned? Or are you livid? We do this all the time. A child flunks a test. Maybe an academic test. Maybe a drug test. And you're not just upset or concerned or worried. You're furious. And you're thinking, not again. So first thing, it's not about you. It's about them. It's about them. It's about the other person. And here's the hard thing. If you really want to help, if you really want to help, you have to love that person. There's no other way. If you really want to help, you have to want the best for that person. Not because of what it means for you, but for that person. And that's the hard switch. Because so many times you want the best for that person, so it helps you out, right? Right? If the spouse takes out the trash, it's better for you. The kid passes the test, it's better for you, right? You gotta separate. Because it's not about you, it's about them. And to really love someone, you gotta say, all right, it's about you. It's not about me, it's about you. So Martin Luther, he put it this way when he was explaining the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment is this 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie, right? And he explains it this way, which is really cool. We are to fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbors, betray or slander them, or destroy their reputations. Instead, we are to come to their defense, speak well of them, and interpret everything they do in the best possible light. That's hard, huh? Because we are so good at justifying our own actions, our own behavior. We are great at it. This morning, I was driving to church, and I hit a red light. It's 6.30 in the morning, in gypsum. There's nobody there. I looked behind me, I looked to the left, I looked to the right, and I kept going through the red light. Hey, it's for the Lord, okay? I was going to church. It's for the Lord I trained that red light. We can justify anything. And we're so good at it. You have a great reason for every time you got mad. I'm sure you do. We can justify anything. So we put the best construction on someone's actions. We're not excusing what they've done. We're just interpreting it in the best possible light. So for example, your spouse does not take out the garbage for the 516th time. And so you think, wow, my spouse must be really busy. They must be working hard. Or my spouse probably didn't see this yet. Or for some reason, this just isn't important to my spouse. Do you think that? Or do you think, man, my spouse is the laziest person on earth. Disrespectful. Inconsiderate. It's hard, huh? It's not about you. It's about the other person. If you really want to help, you have to love that person. And the best way to do that is to focus on the behavior, not how the behavior makes you feel. And it's so hard. That's the only way you're going to help. Because you could get really mad. You could get really angry. You could yell. That'll show them, huh? Get off your chest. How many times does that work? Really? Like zero? Or maybe it changes the behavior, but now they're mad at you? So it fixed the problem, but damaged the relationship? It's not about you. It's about them. And more importantly, it's about Jesus. How do you love someone who's hard to love? How do you put the best construction on everything when so many times stuff in the relationship gets torn down? And you got to make it about Jesus. Jesus, the one who won't allow you to justify your own behavior, make your own excuses. Those are hard words. Those are prophetic words. We can justify anything we say or do. And Jesus will cut right through it and go, nah, it wasn't about it. You weren't trying to help. You were trying to justify yourself. And second, is that person, that person needs Jesus too. That person needs to show Jesus to them. So as I've been talking here, I'm guessing a lot of you are thinking about someone. 
You know that person that you've just been mad at right now, things aren't going well. I want you to close your eyes and just picture that person. Just close your eyes and just picture that person that you're just struggling with right now. Now I want you to picture Jesus hugging that person. It's a little harder, huh? Go ahead and do it. Now I want you to picture you hugging that person. That's harder still. Give it a shot. Jesus Christ died and rose for you. You Open your eyes now. Jesus Christ died and rose for you because he loves you, because you're worth it, because you're valuable, because you mean that much to him. Jesus Christ died and rose for that other person too because that other person is, is valuable, is loved, and means that much to Jesus. you to focus on behavior that's hurting the relationship. And that, there's different ways of doing that. If you're a parent, child, it looks one way. If it's a spouse, it looks another way. If it's an employee, it looks a third way. If it's just a coworker, it looks another way, right? There's lots of ways of doing that. Focus on the behavior and not how it makes you feel. So when you focus on how it makes you feel, then you're justified. Any anger, anything you say, anything you do, you'll make it sound perfect. When you focus on them and God's love for them, what they're doing, you're able to say, all right, it's not about me, it's about them. And that's okay. And God's calling me to walk with this person. And I may never see result. That's what it's hard. You may never see the result. It's sad and it's hard, but it's not about you. I I love to tell people, you know, um, when God calls us to work with folks, we are caregivers. We are not caregivers. God's the caregiver. Right? You're just a caregiver. Our job is to show up and be Jesus to that person. It's God's job to make a change. It's not your job. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And how much he loves this other person. And how much he loves you. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord God, um, it would be so nice, it would be so nice if, um, you know, there would be like the burning bush experience, Lord, where like you say, stop it, take out the trash. And Lord, it would just happen, right? Pass the test, study hard, and it would just happen, right? And it doesn't work that way.
And Lord God, you know that because you would love to do that with us. <laughs> Stop running red lights. So Lord God, um, when you call us to, to serve, when you call us into other people's lives, when you call us into relationships, help us, Lord, to be justified by you and your death on the cross for us and not justify ourselves. Lord, help us to be humble. At the same time, help us to be bold with our words and our love for that other person. Not for that other person reflects on us, Lord God. It's not about us. It's about, it's about that other person. And then trust you to do your work. Because you're God, we're not. You're all powerful, we're not. You're all loving, we're trying to be. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Help us to share it. Amen. Amen. Stand and praise our God.